This will be the last sermon in Ecclesiastes for a few weeks. Uh, Harley and Rod and Floyd are going to take us through uh, the better part of Ephesians chapter 1, or a good portion of verses. Uh, that, that came out wrong. Uh, over the next few weeks, which uh, I trust will be a, a good uh, break, even just change of pace from Ecclesiastes. Uh, but today we're finishing up chapter 7. We're beginning in verse 15. We're going to read through to the end of the chapter. In my vain life, I have seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. Be not overly righteous, and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you should take hold of this, and from that withhold not your hand. For the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. Wisdom gives strength to the wise man more than ten rulers who are in a city. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Do not take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you yourselves have cursed others. All this I have tested by wisdom. I said, I will be wise, but it was far from me. That which has been is far off and deep, very deep. Who can find it out? I turned my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom and the scheme of things and to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness. And I find something more bitter than death. The woman whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters. He who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. Behold, this is what I found, says the preacher, while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things, which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found. One man among a thousand I found, but a woman among all these I have not found. See, this alone I found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. Uh, if you remember from last week, uh, we saw... Uh, first part of chapter 7, a number of Proverbs given back to back, uh, revealing to us uh, wisdom, promoting to us wisdom uh, in very practical ways. Uh, many people divide this chapter really into two, uh, the first 12 verses, um, giving practical instructions about the benefits of wisdom or that which wisdom can give you, can provide for you. While verses 13 to 29 return to the limitations of wisdom, that which wisdom will not do for you. I think that's uh, kind of helpful way to think of it. Um, and, and we have seen Solomon do both throughout Ecclesiastes, talk about uh, the limitations of wisdom, what it's not going to do for you, but also uh, provide some very practical instructions and wisdom for us as well. But even as Solomon is revealing some of the limitations of wisdom in this section, he's also making very clear affirmations for us that come from wisdom. So he's not just saying, here are all the limitations, here are all the things that wisdom's not going to accomplish. 
But he's also making very clear statements about what life is like under the sun. Very clear affirmations of truth. And the thing that becomes crystal clear throughout these verses is the reality of the sin and depravity of man. Wisdom has many limits. Indeed, many things do become or remain a mystery to us. But we can know very clearly that sin is the root problem in the world and we can receive true instruction on living in this fallen world. Uh, Just because man is sinful, just because much is left well beyond us, it doesn't mean that we can't know anything for certain. In verse 15, our attention is drawn to one of those uh, situations that's incredibly grievous to mankind, perplexing. As we consider life in this world, life under the sun, Solomon writes here, in my vain life, and remember that word vain means vapor. So in my vaporous life, referring to the fleeting nature of it, his short life, in my vain life, I have seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. Now, it doesn't explicitly say that the righteous man perished young, but I think that is implied. Uh, The wicked man is contrasted, obviously, to the righteous man. The wicked man prolongs his life in his evil doing. But the righteous man died, uh, as many would say, before his time. From our perspective, he, he went early despite being a righteous man. And this grievous contrast between the wicked man who goes on living and the righteous man who dies is an example of a work that is done and it is fixed when it occurs. A thing that God, we might say back in verse 13, has made crooked and you're not going to be able to straighten out. You're not going to be able to change it. This is one of those days of adversity that God brings that we saw in verse 14. Again, this is a reality of life that grieves many. The decent man or the, even the righteous man dies early while the, right, or the, while the unrighteous man, the wicked man, goes on in his righteousness and his life is preserved. There was and there still is many people, still are many people, who understand that they think that if you live righteously, then you're going to be blessed and you should live longer. If you're suffering, then that is a sign that you are in fact an unrighteous person. You are under God's displeasure if you're suffering. You remember, of course, Job's friends who insisted on this very thing. Uh, The Job claiming he hadn't done anything wrong to deserve the things that he had done. And his friends were They couldn't see anything specific they could point to, but they were saying there has to be because this is how it works. Obviously, because of your great suffering, you're hiding something from us. And Solomon, in these verses, is really taking the side of Job. There are times when the righteous man perishes while the evil man goes on. Moreover, one's prosperity obviously then doesn't necessarily reveal that one is clean before God or that one is righteous. 
This verse is a reminder that righteous men, women still do die. Reveals that our own efforts then at righteousness and whatever gains we might make in that regard will not allow us to escape death. They won't even bring guarantees that we will delay death a really long time. It seems to us that that ought to be the way it is. God is God and he's in control of all things. And you have one person who is righteous, who is pleasing God, maybe doing their best to do what is good and right. And another person who's not trying at all, that one of those people deserves to live longer. And yet this is not how things always play out in life under the sun. All of man dies, every man, even the righteous. In fact, he might even go sooner than the wicked. He has said before in Ecclesiastes 6, do not all go to one place. He has said this. This is the end of all mankind. Wisdom and even one's own gain in righteousness does not deliver. It will not alter life under the sun in such a way that you'll undo the effects of sin. Sin being the wages of death, sorry, being the wages of that sin. And so if your righteousness, your very best, will not guarantee even another day, then it puts a dagger in the heart of man's efforts to gain immortality or anything lasting, truly lasting. Remember, uh, this is what he's been saying throughout Ecclesiastes. Death is this great enemy throughout Ecclesiastes, he's saying, that really voids out so much of our supposed gain in life. And if man's righteousness won't deliver from our great enemy of death, this reveals the need for something more. Even for a Christian, your righteous acts will not deliver you. So all of this reminds us, therefore, that we are in need of what is often referred to as an alien righteousness. That is a righteousness that is not your own, but comes from outside of you, that comes from another. The scriptures teach throughout the Bible of the great need for human beings to be righteous before God, but it also bears witness over and over to the fact that none of us are righteous. And so the righteousness that would justify a man, a woman, is not one's own, but is indeed the righteousness of Christ that the Bible says is received by faith. The righteousness of Christ is credited to the account of all who believe in Him. That is often what is meant by the the phrase imputed righteousness, is it is credited to your account. It's through faith. Jesus takes the sinner's sin And dies for those sins and the believer is then clothed in the righteousness of Christ that he earned in his earthly life. That's part of why he came and lived was to obey the Father and to earn a righteousness that he would then have to give to those he came to save. He lived and died and rose again as the representative of all those who would trust in him. And so the benefits of his saving work are dispensed, are given through 
faith. They're received by sinners through faith, through believing. Believers, of course, will still die, but the pain of it is eased because of the hope in Christ Jesus. Jesus himself said to Martha in John 11, whoever believes in me, though he dies, yet shall he live. In Revelation, we're told the second death will not have any power, that is God's eternal judgment, will not have any power over those who are righteous in Christ. We are in need of a greater righteousness than anything you or I could ever possibly attain in order to be delivered from death, in order to be delivered from our sins. And the only solution then is the righteousness that is provided by God through faith in Jesus Christ. Let's carry on with verse 16. He says, Be not overly righteous and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you should take hold of this, and from that withhold not your hand. For the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. Wisdom gives strength to the wise man more than ten rulers who are in the city. Well, these verses are, I'm sure you realize, difficult. Uh, particularly verses 16 and 17. One commentator called them a commentator's nightmare. It seems that Solomon is suggesting righteousness is not really that big of a deal to try and concern yourself too much with trying to pursue it. Some do think that Solomon here takes on the voice of the mocker or skeptic and maybe somewhat sarcastically promotes the idea of trying on the one hand to not really be overly good or a goody two-shoes, but also, on the other hand, maybe don't be too overly evil to try and maybe find some middle path. I think, in fact, that is what a lot of people try to do, aim for some middle ground. They'll avoid the most extremes of evil, perhaps, maybe, But they're also quite willing to indulge in certain indiscretions. A little better than most, perhaps. But no claims to absolute purity. But I don't think this is really what Solomon is saying with this text. So here's what I would suggest that he is saying. I think what he's doing is trying to commend to us a certain measure of realism about life in a fallen world. That on the one hand, you should be cautious about being overly optimistic about what you're going to attain in your own pursuit of righteousness and wisdom. That you should not place your confidence and your hope in that. The righteous, as he has said, still die. Certainly, then, this would rule out legalism. This would rule out trying to earn righteousness through your own efforts. This would uh, deny self-righteousness or any efforts to try and gain heaven on the merit of law-keeping. But I think this also addresses the believer. To remind us that complete and full experience of righteousness is never going to be attained 
in this life. This is true. When trusting in Christ, you are indeed declared righteous, and the righteousness of Christ is credited to your account. This is then the grounds of your salvation. You're saved because of what Christ has done, what he has accomplished. That is, that is the grounds upon which your salvation rests. But in your person, you still sin. You haven't perfectly been conformed to be perfectly righteous yet. Indeed, you are being sanctified. It's the idea of being progressively made more holy, progressively sanctified. God is now forming all who trust in Christ into the image of Christ. This process, Scripture is clear, is not completed until the last day. So again, uh, when one is justified, that is purely because of what Christ has done. The grounds of one's salvation rest solely on what he has accomplished, not your own works, which is why the Christian can have confidence, even if you've had a bad day, but realize Christ is your only hope, even when your own uh, efforts to be righteous have failed and you realize you have sinned grievously again, but you know that, you're repentant of that, you recognize Christ is your only hope, you're still every bit as justified as the day before when you had a much better day. Because your grounds of salvation is not your righteousness, the things you accomplish at any point, but purely and only because of what Christ has done. From the moment you're saved until the moment you die. If 60 years pass and you grow tremendously in grace through that time, the reason you're saved at the end of it is always only because of what Christ has accomplished. It's very different than from what many others would say. Roman Catholicism, for example, says you are not really fully justified until you are experientially, actually righteous. And so that's not going to come till likely years into purgatory when you've finally been purged of all unrighteousness and now you actually uh, are righteous. Now you have uh, the right to be, to claim actually being fully justified. That's very different. It's not tied to our own experience of righteousness. So there is perhaps then a danger in becoming fanatical about righteousness and about wisdom based upon maybe unbiblical expectations of what we think are going to happen in our heart and in our lives, of what we think we might be able to attain, of how great we think we might be able to become. If you think that absolute perfection is within reach, that could become your obsession. The Bible does not teach this, that we will be perfected this side of our death, this side of Christ's return. And so on the one hand, there's, there's that reality, but on the other hand, you must also realize that while sin is something you must live with, this doesn't mean you should just throw your lot in with the wicked and just give yourself over to folly, to further sin. Perfection is out of reach. Your own experience of holiness is not going to end in perfection in this life. It's not going to ward off death. But this doesn't mean we throw our hands up and just run off into headlong into sin. 
And so in verse 18, Solomon is saying that the one who fears God comes out from both of them. This would indicate that the God-fearer is neither overconfident in their own righteousness and what they'll accomplish, but nor is he or she complacent altogether about these matters. The God-fearer is one who sees these two ditches and holds fast to these truths and clings to Christ, despises sin, but is also realistic about his own efforts at mortifying sin. man named Benjamin Shaw wrote a commentary on Ecclesiastes, published with Banner of Truth, and he argues for this position that this is what Solomon is getting at. And I just want to quote from him at length here. He says, we, talking about Christians, we are told to pursue holiness without which no man shall see God. That's from 1 Peter. But perfection in this righteousness, holiness, will not be achieved in this life. It is a necessary recognition if a Christian is to live with himself and with others. The other side of the matter is that we should not become complacent and indulgent with our sin, wickedness. That is the path of folly and it is deadly. This is indeed a fine line. It is difficult to keep both of these ideas together at the same time and live in the light of them. This is why in verse 13 Solomon says that wisdom gives strength to the wise. It requires a really wise man to recognize this twofold truth. We must pursue righteousness while recognizing that it is an unattainable goal in this life. It is only the truly wise man who can apprehend and adapt himself to the limits of wisdom. It can be extremely frustrating at times to live in a fallen world. Christians are called to kill the sin that remains in us, Romans 8, 13. We can get angry, we can get frustrated, and and most often very discouraged when we fail, when we still sin. And yet the Bible is clear that we're not going to attain perfection this side of, again, Christ's return or death, that we, though we strive for it. Philippians 3, Paul says this very thing. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. That comes after speaking about the righteousness he has by faith in Christ. And so the wise will learn to live with this tension. It is the tension... I think Romans 6, 7, and 8 lays out for us. If you think of chapter 6, it says, How can we who died to sin still live in it? So we think, great, we're set free from sin to live in righteousness. But then chapter 7 comes and he says, But the things that I want to do, I don't do. The things that I don't want to do, I do. So, We still sin. We're set free, but we're still sinners. What do we do? Chapter 8 comes along. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Resting in the righteousness of Christ. And we press on in the battle with our flesh, which chapter 8 goes on to talk about mortifying or putting our sin to death. 
Now Solomon obviously doesn't quite see all of it with that specificity. He's many years before the coming of Christ and before the Apostle Paul wrote as he did in Romans, Philippians. But Solomon does seem to be pointing to this struggle. The tension that perfect righteousness is unattainable and yet sin is still greatly evil. And so it does require strength from wisdom to live in this way, to not beat ourselves down in our failures, but also not to become complacent about sin. Some of you today may well be complacent about your sin. Maybe content to just let sin reign that grace may abound. But understand that when you do that, you are playing with fire. Your holy God is still the discipliner of his people. In Proverbs 6, Solomon asks, Can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes not be burned? God's kindness to you and his grace to you is not to be presumed upon, but is meant to lead to repentance, Romans 2. Others of you are perhaps feeling crippled by a knowledge of your sin. A great awareness that in thought, in deed, in action, in desire, you know that you are still very sinful and this is not right. This does not line up with what scripture says. Some of you feel crippled by this. You would know the scriptures say you're not going to reach perfection in this life, but you perhaps still practically live and act as if you ought to be. Sometimes maybe even acting surprised when you sin. Understand that you're never going to measure up. Understand the true grounds of your salvation is not in you. Rest in Christ. Rest in His salvation. Yes, rest there even before you have perfect victory or you will never rest. Again, it is by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works that no one may boast. Now let's continue with verse 20. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Do not take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. These verses show very clearly the universality of sin. Now, verse 20 says it very plainly. There's not one person who never sins. Apostle John said in 1 John, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. This is the testimony of the Bible throughout. And verse 21 then instructs us not to take to heart all the things that people say. In a world of sinners, everywhere you look and see a person, there is a sinner. There is some need for a measure of thick skin. He adds, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Uh, you are going to be sinned against in this life. It's inevitable. And we can't take it all to heart. 
This doesn't mean it's okay. It doesn't mean it's right when somebody sins against you. It doesn't mean you can't talk to them about it, address it. But it does mean we need not take everything so very personally or be filled with great outrage and shock when somebody sins against you. Again, the wise person will understand this. And this is pointing you toward humility, which I think becomes clear in verse 22. Your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. In other words, you're in the same boat. You're not fundamentally different than that person who you overheard saying something bad about you. You've done the very same things many times, it says, to others. There's similarity in what Solomon is saying here to what Jesus would say later when he told us, he instructed us, before we deal with the speck in the brother's eye, we're to deal with the log that's in our own. Here in Ecclesiastes, the servant cursed you once, it says, but you've cursed others many times. So these verses 20 to 22 here reveal that sin is in everyone, including in you, driving that home in verse 22. It's easy for us to, to see, I think, that we live in a sinful world in general, to see the sins of others around us. That's, that's much easier to do. We can acknowledge that very readily and very quickly. But this is pressing home that there is sin in you as well. And because of this, wisdom teaches you not to take every sin against you so personally or with shock or with outrage. And the realization of your own great sinfulness will help you deal graciously with others and calmly when they sin against you. And so this is important. This is wisdom for us as we consider just living life in the world out there. But it's also crucial in here, within the church as well. And I would encourage you to really own this. To really grapple with this. When Peter asks Jesus how many times he should forgive the person who sins against him and then comes and asks for forgiveness, Jesus essentially told him as often as the person repents. And he went on to then say uh, a parable, tell him a parable of this unmerciful servant. A servant who had been forgiven a tremendously large debt, but who wouldn't turn around and forgive another who owed him a much much smaller debt. And this is how we typically are. We view our sins as not really a big deal and we want everybody to overlook them and deal with us kindly and graciously. But it's so much harder when it's somebody else. We feel that outrage rise up. But the fact is, whatever sin you might commit against me is nowhere near the amount of sin I've committed against God Almighty. Nowhere near the debt I've built up with Him that have been pardoned. And so the believer understands that we have no right to withhold forgiveness to those who would come to us and ask for it.
The remaining verses here in chapter 7 wrap up this section again, stating wisdom's limitations, but also the clarity of sinfulness. Verse 23, all this I have tested by wisdom. So he has done a thorough examination of these things that he is presenting before us. I said I will be wise, but it was far from me. That which has been is far off and deep, very deep. Who can find it out? Solomon has sought after wisdom, but again concludes there was so much that he couldn't determine. There was much that was still beyond reach, far off, too deep to find out. This wise teacher discovers that he's not as wise as he wishes he could be. He ends verse 24. Who can find it out? It's not just him. He's saying, who else? Who's going to figure these things out? They're beyond us. And as we've seen many times in Ecclesiastes, this is God's world. Only he knows it all. That's the implication from what he's saying here when he says, who can find it out? Not man. There are many discoveries that man will not be able to make through wisdom. Again, you remember back to last week in verses 13 and 14. Verse 25, I turned my heart to know and search out and to seek wisdom and the scheme of things and to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness. Again, he states his quest for understanding. That's what he means when he says that he sought the scheme of things or the accounting of things. In the second half of verse 25, he applies himself specifically to an understanding of the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness. Uh, just notice there that, that folly and foolishness are moral categories for, for Solomon. Moral categories in Scripture. It's not just sign of a, oh, I just didn't know. Not kind of a harmless ignorance it's wickedness and he adds a discovery as he was examining folly verse 26 as he was examining wickedness I find something more bitter than death the woman whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters he who pleases God escapes her but the sinner is taken by her now that's quite a claim to find something more bitter than death. He has laid out already this bitterness of a righteous man dying while a wicked man goes on, but he's found something even more bitter for us to consider, bitter, more bitter than death. Now Solomon doesn't explicitly elaborate on the precise way that this woman's heart and hands and snare and bind men, but most take it as, and I think probably correctly, there's a good chance that this is speaking of an adulterous woman. Much like Solomon elaborates on in Proverbs 5 to 7. There he notes that her words might be smooth, they might drip with honey, but her feet go down to death. Her steps follow the path to Sheol. That is the fool who turns aside to such. Adultery destroys homes, ruins individuals, men, women, children, brought 
families, other associations. Of course, it is not the unforgivable sin, but it is one that has devastating consequences. Solomon is saying that by calling it more bitter than death. This is the truth that men and women need to understand. This is a sin that would promise much, drip honey, seem appealing, perhaps, but brings death, brings devastation. The fool or the sinner wanders into such, like an ox to the slaughter. Again, that Solomon says that in Proverbs 7. But here he says, he who pleases God escapes her. The Bible is very clear that such sin is not to be toyed with. We're not to be careless about it. We're instructed to flee from sexual immorality, whatever form it may take, whatever form we might be tempted by it. And indeed, we know there are many, many forms today. So it's important to remember, even as Solomon says here, that one who pleases God escapes this, to also remember 1 Corinthians 10, 13. An important verse, whatever the temptation you might be battling with, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. Nobody understands. Nobody's been through this. It's not true. God is faithful. And He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, He will also provide the way of escape that you may, may be able to endure it. There is a way of escape. Make war on these sins. Get help. Talk to a mature brother or sister, one of the elders, if you need to. Do not play with fire. Verse 27 goes on. Behold, this is what I found, says the preacher, while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things, which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found. Now, the word found is used throughout these verses, right through to verse 29. It means to comprehend, to understand, to figure out. Again, Solomon tried to comprehend the scheme of things. Repeatedly, he says, but full understanding of it all has eluded him. He's not found it. There's much beyond him. Life is still a mystery in many ways to him. But then he continues by telling us what he has found. One man among a thousand I found, but a woman among all these I have not found. Now, some take this to mean that he has found one righteous man out of a thousand, uh, but zero righteous women amongst a thousand women. Uh, that's possible. Uh, and before, you know, ladies would get too upset about that, this is, th that would not be a glowing picture of humanity either way. But I don't think that's what he's saying. If we keep the definition of found the same, to comprehend or to understand, then I think it leads to a slightly different conclusion. What he's saying then is that as he has sought to find, to understand, to comprehend humanity, he really has had no great success. He has fared slightly better with his fellow men, one out of a thousand, but humanity as a whole still remains an enigma to him. And then verse 29 again tells us that which is clear. 
for all the failing of his quest, he tells us one thing that is certain. He's sure of. You can hold fast to this. Verse 29. See this alone I found. Again, understood, comprehended. That God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. Solomon is certain of what Genesis 1 to 3 teaches us and tells us. That man was made upright by God. God is good. But man has sought out many schemes or many devices. Man has sought out evil, inventive ways even of performing wickedness. Adam was the first man. And through his one act of sin... Sin and death entered into the world. And death spread, as we read in Romans 5, to all men because all men sinned in Adam. As humanity's representative, Adam was created upright. He was created good, but he failed and he plunged us all into darkness. And now as descendants of our first parents, we are among those who seek out many schemes, many devices. Much there is that escapes Solomon's grasp and understanding but this much does not as Philip Ryken says about this he says what doctrine has been more has more explanatory power than depravity what he's getting at is that it makes so much sense of this world that we live in certainly there is much that is still left a mystery Again, if you just consider some of the things that are going on in our own day and some of the wild things that people are advocating and saying, what, how did we get here? Why are people saying and doing these things? There are specific reasons that are good to consider and try to figure out that might be helpful to us to understand a little more. But even if we don't understand it all, what do we know? This, that at the end of the day, Man was created upright, but has sought out many schemes. The sinfulness of man explains this. Notice that mankind's responsibility in all of this is upheld here. The fall of man, while again, if you think of Adam's original fall, leaves much we don't understand, leaves many questions... It is indeed, sin is indeed mankind's responsibility. Man was made upright, but has sought many schemes. As sons of Adam in our natural, our sinful, fallen state, our wills are bound to evil. But we certainly participate in that evil willingly. Natural man does not sin against his desire. It is what he wants. And so of all the things beyond reach, man's sinfulness and guilt before God is quite evident. And not just a little bit, but a seeking out of it. And so this whole section drives home the universality of sin. It is not just a Western problem. That this is a Western religion trying to solve. Solomon was not a Western man, of course. 
It is not a white man problem. It is a humanity problem. Anywhere you would find human beings. And again, while much of what goes on in our world is beyond our full grasp and full understanding, this reality of sin explains so much of it. And as we have already said, the only answer to man's waywardness and sinful scheming is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Again, you may not understand what's driving your neighbors and why people might say and do the things they are. And it might be helpful to understand those things better, but at the end of the day, you still understand what the scriptures say about humanity's greatest problem and humanity's greatest need, the only solution, Christ, his righteousness, his forgiveness of sins that he offers. And so you don't need to be cowed by intellects who might make you feel inferior and scared to speak up about what mankind needs to hear in these days. It is the righteousness of Christ that human beings need in order to be justified. It is his pardon that is needed, which he purchased by dying for sinners on the cross and rising from the dead. And this gift of God's grace, this salvation that is offered in Christ Jesus is received only by faith, not through works of any kind, but by receiving this promise and resting in the work of Christ by faith. So let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for what your word declares to us. We are reminded of, of sin and its great power. The fact that every man and woman, every child, everybody is born into this world as sinners, descendants of Adam, seeking out ways of doing sinful things. Father, I pray that we would have it all, have a realization, young and old, of what you have to say about sin. That we would not be dismissive of it. Father, I pray that you would convict us all of sin's great evil. But Father, that we would not remain there, but also see the beauty of the salvation that you have worked in sending your son. Father, that we would indeed rest in him and trust our salvation to him. Father, I pray that we would be those who do not confuse your grace with our works, that we do not think that it is our own works that contribute to our salvation. Father, I pray that you would give us the grace to live with the tension of the fact that we are simultaneously justified in Christ and yet still sinners in our lives. That we would hate our sin and strive against it and yet not get lost in depression and downcastness and anger or whatever else, frustration, when we find ourselves to have been sinners. But that we would look again at Christ, that we would be refreshed in his grace 
Father, we do pray that you'd pour out your power upon us, that we would experience greater power to walk in righteousness, to walk in holiness. Father, keep us on guard against our sin. May we not make peace with the sin itself. Father, we are all in need of forgiveness. We confess that we fall short of your glory. We thank you for Christ. Father, we pray that you would bless the rest of our worship together. In Jesus' name, amen.